We are thankful for everyone that is here this morning, though, and if you're visiting with us, thank you for coming our way. And uh, as a small group, anytime we have people come to visit, it's like, yes. <laughs> so if you're ever as a Christian, well, as an individual, ever feeling the need to be appreciated and loved, go visit a small group on Sunday morning. They're always glad to see you, I guarantee you. So we're thankful that you're here this morning and appreciate your coming our way and being with us. Um, you can see from the title this morning, Bible Course 101, Applying God's Word. And so this is just a sort of basic lesson uh, about interpreting and then making application of God's Word. And you may be wondering, well, why are we talking about this at this particular time? We have been studying the life of Christ on Wednesday evenings for some time. We are at that point in the life of Christ where it's during that last week. Jesus is going to go into the temple and they're going to, the religious leaders are going to approach him and they're going to ask, Matthew 21, by what authority do you do these things? Now then, it was mentioned, and I forget by who this morning, something, maybe it was James. Uh, in fact, I believe it was. In his prayer, he said, if you have any question about the things that we do here, that we would be glad to answer that and give book, chapter, and verse. Is that essentially what you said in your prayer? That we would give book, chapter, and verse. Well, that is a part of establishing authority and giving book, chapter, and verse. But before you even get to book, chapter, and verse and command, example, necessary inference, there's something before that. <laughs> and that's really what we're taking a look at this morning. This is Bible Course 101, Making Application of God's Word. And I believe in the very first step in making application of God's Word is to first come to understand that we are going to act on, be guided by, governed by what God says and not by what He doesn't say. And that's really the point of this entire lesson, but we'll work down through all of this in order to get this. A long time ago, in trying to come to understand Bible interpretation and application, I read a lesson that I'm going to borrow from this morning that helped me to understand that principle. Be governed by what God says, not by what He doesn't say. And so that's kind of the approach we'll take this morning. I'm going to borrow from this lesson, and I'll tell you which part of it I'm going to borrow from in a little bit. And if you ever have a desire to go back and read this entire lesson, I'll tell you where you can find it. And it was first preached, to my knowledge, in 1922 in Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee. There may be some of you that are familiar with this. A man by the name of N.B. Hardeman was the one that was doing the preaching on that occasion. Ryman Auditorium, home of the Grand Old Opry, was packed to the rafters. Probably 8,000 people there. N.B. Hardeman was a gospel preacher, but first and primarily, he was a school teacher. <laughs> but he was a gifted speaker, and he spoke on that occasion. And uh, the title of his lesson was, on that occasion, Federalists and anti-federalist and you'll see as we go along why it was it was titled like that we read this morning from Psalms Psalms 119 and we read verses 89 through verses 1 through 1 
through 112. But in doing that, one of the passages that is probably the most familiar from that section of Scripture is verse 105. Thy word is a, lamp, uh, a light into my path. <laughs> Thy word is a light into my path and a lamp unto my feet. That's the passage that we're probably most familiar with. And so as we take a look at that and we think about God's word going to be our guide, most everyone in the religious community would agree to that. They'd say, yes, yes, in the Bible, the Bible's our guide. And you will hear various religious groups say, yes, the Bible is our guide. But then as you take a look around and you say, well, if the Bible is our guide, then why is there so much division? And why is there so much inconsistency in the things in which people teach? Even basic things. Different groups will teach various things about salvation. Various groups teach various things about how to worship God. Various groups will teach various things about works and whether they're essential or not and so forth. And so if the Bible is the guide, then why is it that there is so much inconsistency? In John, the 12th chapter, in verse 48, Jesus said, He who rejects me and receiveth not my sayings has one who judges him. This same word which I have spoken shall judge him in the last day. So Jesus said, This word that I've spoken, that I've delivered, is the standard by which we are going to be judged. So the question comes, then how do we interpret that and make application of it if we're going to be judged by it? And so that's what we want to explore this morning, basically, and what is the first step in that? How should we go about doing that? Now then, to the lesson that I borrowed from a number of years ago, and I'll just tell you an interesting point. The first time I actually ever heard this lesson before I read this lesson, I heard a guy preaching this south of the river at Hickman Mills. <laughs> this was probably back in 1980 or something like that. And I went up to him and I said, that's a really interesting lesson and I like that. And I'd like to borrow that material. And he said, well, it's not mine. <laughs> and I said, then where, where do I get it? <laughs> and I've told people this before. Originality with a preacher is forgetting where you got your material. <laughs> so I'll just tell you this morning, this is not original, and he told me this is not original, and he passed. But, but this principle is essential, and it's basic. But in sharing this with you once again, I make no apology for that because it's essential that we understand this because we're going to be judged by God's Word. But we have to understand how to interpret, interpret it and make the proper application of it. So here's the illustration that I want to share with you from this sermon that was preached by N.B. Hardiman. Because he was a school teacher, and I can understand why he might do this. He talked about the American Revolution. And he started that lesson by recalling to their minds how a group of people had torn away from the mother country and decided to establish on their own a new nation. And so they fought this bloody war, 
finally won their and gained their freedom. But then after doing so, they clearly understood we have now got to function as a group, as a nation, and what is going to guide us and lead us along the way. That led to what we refer to as the Constitution of the United States. They were going to become a nation. Peter says, 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, we are a holy nation. I think it's easy to understand why he might draw from that kind of illustration and that kind of comparison. We've been given God's law to guide us and direct us as a holy nation. Man got together and composed the Constitution so that it might guide and direct them as a nation, as a, us as a nation. But now, as they did that, and the Constitution was put together, it was agreed upon, voted upon, <laughs> signed by, and ratified and determined, this is going to be the guiding light for us as a nation. This is what is going to lead us and guide us as a group of people. So that's what they did. So according to the Constitution, then they set up this government. George Washington was elected as the first president. He put together his cabinet, his group of advisors. As the country started conducting their business, Alexander Hamilton was appointed as Secretary of Treasury. And Thomas Jefferson was appointed the Secretary of Foreign Affairs, or what we now refer to as the Secretary of State. One of the reasons why Alexander Hamilton was put forth and then appointed as the Secretary of Treasury is because Alexander Hamilton was a financial genius. Well, it wasn't long over after he took over that position that he recognized that the country was already deeply in debt. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? <laughs> but from the very beginning, because fighting a war is expensive, so the nation had debt. So how are we going to handle this debt? So Alexander Hamilton determined, well, we need taxes and tariffs and so forth that starts to generate this revenue that comes into the government and then the government can pay its bills. Well, that was all well and good. And then the next thing that he suggested was, what we need to do is establish a national bank. Everything had been going pretty along pretty well until that point. And then Thomas Jefferson said, wait a minute, hold up. We can't establish a national bank. And so some are saying, why not? He said, because the Constitution makes no provision for it. So therefore, we can't establish a national bank. So you had Alexander Hamilton on one side and you had Thomas Jefferson on the other side. 
And Alexander Hamilton was saying, well, the Constitution does not say that we can't establish a national bank, so therefore we can't. And Thomas Jefferson said, no. <laughs> the Constitution does not make provision for establishing a national bank, so therefore we can't do that. So that was one of the first major and great debates within that new government. So how are they going to settle it? And so it was determined we got to go back to the Constitution because that's the guiding light. That's the law of the land. That's guiding us as a people where we can function and where we can't function, where we should go and where we should not go. And they both agreed the Constitution was the guiding light. Now, as those arguments were put forth, it was brought up. We also all agree that the Constitution as written by men is not an infallible document. That had been recognized and agreed upon that it could be amended if they needed to. So now then, keeping that point in mind, <laughs> the Constitution, as written by men, can be amended. But when you think about the Constitution that is delivered by the Lord, <laughs> there's no amendment clause, is there? <laughs> but that was the basic position that these two men took, and that was what had to be decided. Alexander Hamilton says, if it doesn't say we can't do it, then we can go ahead and do it. And Thomas Jefferson said, no, if it doesn't make a provision for it, then we can't. We can amend it, add to it, so that we can do it, but as it stands, you can't just act because it doesn't say so. It's got to say so. So, at that point in time, those original two groups, they were referred to as strict constructionists and loose constructionists. Federalist, anti-federalist. Guess what that ultimately led to? <laughs> Two political parties, didn't it? <laughs> and we know what those are. Now, one of the reasons why, before we go any further, that I bring this up, one of the reasons, first and primary, is because Matthew chapter 21, and that's where we're headed in our study when they're going to ask Jesus about authority. But just within the last week or so, talking with a person that I consider a friend, but come from different perspectives on understanding and interpreting and applying God's Word. He was asking me about a simple subject in regards to baptism. His perspective and understanding, as I understand it, is he would see no problem in sprinkling or pouring in regards to the mode of baptism of a person. 
I, on the other hand, would take the position that if you're going to be baptized, you're going to be immersed. This is what he said to me. He said, do you really think that it matters that much to God? He's sincere, and I do not doubt that for a moment. And I told him on that occasion, I do not mind at all you asking me, questioning me, challenging me along these lines in regards to this. But just like Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> what's the law of the land, so to speak? They came from different perspectives. Both men were sincere, but how do we settle this? And so in the realm of spiritual issues, we would ask ourselves once again, how do we settle this? I do not doubt the sincerity of someone because they ask those questions. I hope they don't doubt mine. But how, how are we going to settle it? Does it make any difference to God? How we interpret and make application of his word? If his word doesn't say, well, you can't do this, then we are at liberty to just go ahead and do it? Or does he expect that we stick to and hold to, excuse me, hold to only what he has said? And that's the only realm that I can operate in. So, I want us to think about that and along those lines. A spiritual constitution that has been delivered by God. Even this morning, as we read at the Lord's table from Matthew, the 26th chapter, as Jesus gave them the fruit of the vine, he said, take this, drink it. It is the blood of the new covenant, the new contract, the new constitution, the new law that has been delivered to God's people to guide them and to direct them as a holy nation. But this constitution, this covenant that Jesus has delivered is not like the one that guides our land as a people. They recognize that it is not infallible. And it has been amended and they recognize that. We recognize that also. But that's not the Constitution. That's not the covenant that Jesus delivered to us. There's no provision for amendment to his Constitution. But I think the attitude that a lot of people have towards it today is kind of like the attitude that Alexander Hamilton had in regards to the Constitution. If it doesn't say we can't do it, then we can go ahead and do it. And a lot of people in religion today would say the same thing. And that was basically the issue, the discussion that I was having with this friend. Well, it doesn't say that you can't sprinkle, so we can just go ahead and sprinkle. <laughs> and I would say, no, God hasn't given us that authority that leeway 
that liberty to just act in that realm. So the question is then, how do we correctly interpret and make application of God's word? So let's ask ourselves this question. Really, what's the principle behind all the things that we do in the name of religion? Because if we get back of the issues and take a look at the principle, then I think that helps to resolve the issues where we have division oftentimes. So what I want us to do this morning is to take a look at some examples from God's Word. And this was the point that I made to this gentleman also. When you're reading God's Word, you take the evidence, you examine it, you weigh it, and you reach a conclusion as to what you're supposed to do. I think as we look at some examples, it will become clear what God expects and how we are to interpret and make application of His Word. So I'm just going to ask you to follow along, if you would, and we'll look at a few examples together from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I think we'll come to understand what it is that God, what approach He would have us to take. Let's just take a look first. In Genesis, Genesis the fourth chapter, and I want to read verses 1 through 5. Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And also, Abel also, brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And the Lord respected Cain and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Why is that? Here's Cain, here's Abel. Abel is a shepherd. Cain is one who tills the ground and raises crops. And it says, after a period of time, they both brought forth an offering. But God had respect for Abel's offering, but not for Cain's. Why was that? Was it just a personal preference? He had something against Cain. He liked Abel, and he didn't like Cain? Well, turn to the book, uh, book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter. And I think this is what helps us to come to understand exactly the point that was being made back in Genesis. Hebrews, the 11th chapter. I'm going to read verse 1 and 2, and then I'll skip down to verse 4. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained, those of old, obtained a good testimony. Verse 4. By faith... Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. So what's the Hebrew writer tell us? What light does he kind of shine upon, shine upon us? He says, by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. 
Romans the 10th chapter in verse 17 says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So when you put those together, what's that mean? Very means very simply this. God told Cain and Abel what he wanted. Faith comes by hearing. The Hebrew writer says by faith Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. Therefore, it's reasonable to conclude from Genesis the 4th chapter, God told them what he wanted. So therefore, when Abel brought forth the sacrifice, God had respect for it. But Cain did not do what God had asked, so therefore God did not regard or give respect to his offering. Can we see that? You know, we might ask ourselves, is there something wrong with wheat? <laughs> is there something wrong with oats? Is there something wrong with being a tiller of the ground? No, not at all. But the question we've got to ask ourselves is, are we going to do what God says and walk by faith? Or are we going to do what just simply seems good to us? Now then, moving forward just a little bit, in Genesis the sixth chapter, this is where God instructs Noah to build the ark. And Noah is told, I want you to make this ark out of gopher wood. And I want you to make it 300 cubits long and 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high with a window and a door to pitch the same inside and outside and to make it the first, second, and third stories. Does that sound like God gave specific instructions to Noah? <laughs> certainly sounds like it, doesn't it? So did Noah go out and go, well, you know what? <laughs> I know he said make it 300 cubits long, but mm, I'll go 250. <laughs> he didn't say I couldn't go 250, so I'll go 250. <laughs> That's not what he did. In Genesis, the sixth chapter in verse, 26, verse 22, it says, and thus Noah did. In other words, according to to what God had said, that's what Noah did. Once again in the book of Hebrews, 11th chapter, it says, by faith, Noah prepared the ark for the saving of his family. By faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So he did what God said to do. But then moving forward a little further. Come to the time of Moses. God brings the children of Israel out of Egypt. They arrive at Mount Sinai. And he delivers his constitution, his law, the Ten Commandments to them. Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter in about verse 2. Even at that time, God gives the warning do not add to, neither shall you take from this word that I am commanding you. Do not add to it, and do not take away from it. But you know what? <laughs> there were strict constructionists and loose constructionists in the time of Moses also. God had given them 
the tabernacle and a priesthood and sacrifices and a way to worship. And there were two priests, sons of Aaron, Leviticus the 10th chapter, Nadab and Abihu, that went to offer up fire before the Lord. Now God had told them specifically where they were to get the fire from when they were offering up sacrifices unto him. Nadab and Abihu decided to get it from someplace else, and it says they offered up profane fire which he had not commanded. As a result, fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. They might have reasoned along these lines. Well, I know the Lord said we're supposed to get fire from over here. But I'm sure he won't mind if we get it from over here. And so they were loose constructionists, weren't they? He didn't say we couldn't get it from over there. But what happened when they offered up strange fire? Fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. God wanted them to adhere to what they had been told. Another example, familiar with most of us, 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter, the first king of Israel is Saul. God had told Saul that he wanted him to go down and to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Their animals, the men, the women, the children, wiped them out. Saul goes down, and the people decide, we're not going to utterly destroy them. We will keep that which is best of the herds and the flocks. And so as he is coming back, God sends Samuel out to confront him. And Saul says to Samuel, blessed are ye of the Lord, I have fulfilled the commandment of the Lord. <laughs> Hear what he said? God told Saul through Samuel, you go down there and you utterly wipe out those Amalekites and everything that is there. They go down and they spare the king. They take the best of the flocks, the best of the herds, and they're coming back. And Saul says to Samuel, blessed are you of the Lord. I have fulfilled the commandment of the Lord. <laughs> and you know what Samuel said? If you've fulfilled the commandment of the Lord, why do I hear the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of oxen in the background? You utterly carried out his command? Then why do I hear all these animals? Saul ended up losing his kingdom over that. The people had decided. Saul had allowed it. They decided this is what we're going to do instead of adhering to what God had said. But to draw the point even a little more closely, and to me this is one of the saddest occasions in the Old Testament. Moses is leading the children of Israel in the wilderness. Numbers the 20th chapter. Moses has become somewhat frustrated in, in leading these people, and we can understand that. But the people are needing water. 
And so God commands Moses that I want you to go and I want you to speak to the rock and when you speak to the rock it will bring forth water. I want to read this together. Numbers of this 20th chapter. Because this is important that we understand this. And the principle that's taught there. Numbers the 20th chapter. I'm going to read verses 8 through 11 and then I'm going to Read verse 12 in just a moment. Numbers, the 20th chapter, beginning at verse 8. Verse 7, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Must we bring forth you out of this rock, bring forth for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. What happened? God says, take the rod, go to the rock, speak. Moses, a little frustrated, takes the rod, goes to the rock, and says, you bunch of rebels, here we are again. And he strikes that rock twice. God still allowed water to come forth. But now look at verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Listen to what he says. Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. You ever hear that old discussion? about, you know, I want to be saved by faith, not by works. You ever, you ever hear that? <laughs> that? That argument is settled right here in verse 12. Because God told Moses, I want you to go and speak to that rock. And instead of him speaking to it, he decides to strike it. But did God say to Moses, you didn't do what I told you to do? He didn't, did he? No, he didn't do it. He didn't do what God told him to do. But God did not say to him, Moses, you did not do what I told you to do. But what did God say? Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me. See that? He equates belief with action. You didn't do what I told you to do. But he didn't say you didn't do it. He said you didn't believe me. In essence, if you had believed me, you would have done what I told you to do. 
later on in the book of Deuteronomy, <laughs> Moses is led to the mount, top of Mount Nebo, and he's allowed to view the promised land, but he's not allowed to enter. Why? <laughs> because he disobeyed? Yeah. But because he didn't believe the Lord on that occasion. So he's not allowed to enter. So even Moses serves as an example of strict constructionist and loose constructionist. But now then, when we come to the New Testament, I want you to take a look, and we'll just look at a few of these, and then we'll wrap this up. Keeping those principles in mind, I want you, I want you to take a look at 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to re skip down and read verse 6. Because Paul is making a point to these people. And he says, I'm going to take this principle and I'm going to apply it to me and Apollos so that you can understand what it is that God wants you to do. So 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, verse 1 and 2. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul's saying, this is the way y'all look at it. We're, we're just stewards of the mysteries of God. We're servants of God. Verse 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Now verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one, one against another. What Paul's saying. Don't go beyond. Don't think beyond what is written. And that's what happens when people start to construe God's word loosely. Well, it doesn't say we can't do it. So therefore, we'll go ahead and do it. And Paul says, don't go beyond, don't think beyond that which is written. 2 John in verse 9, John says, that he that goeth on and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. But that he that abides in the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. What's John saying? The one that abides in is the one that has the approval of Christ and the Father. But that he that goes beyond that, he does not have the approval of Christ and the Father. Same thing Paul is saying. Don't think beyond. Don't go beyond that which is written. So when I take these passages and I look at them and I try to understand spiritually how does God want me to interpret and make application of his word? The conclusion that I reach is the same conclusion that Jefferson reached towards the Constitution. If it makes no provision for it, we can't do it. There's just two other examples I want to give you very quickly, and then we'll, we'll, we'll sum it up. 
Acts the 15th chapter, if you want to turn there very quickly, and I'll just tell you in Acts the 15th chapter, there is a conference that takes place, and it's in regards to circumcision. Clearly understandable that many of those early Christians would have come from Jewish background. They would have lived under, they would have been born under, they would have lived under the law of Moses. Circumcision was essential to being a part of that covenant. But when the covenant changed, as we read Matthew 26 this morning, even at the Lord's table, that Jesus brought a new covenant, a new constitution, circumcision was not a part of that. And so they needed to settle that issue. Is circumcision essential for salvation? Some were saying it was, some were saying it wasn't. So there was a conference held in Jerusalem and a decision had to be reached. And then after that decision was reached, there was a letter that was sent out to the churches. Acts 15th chapter, beginning at verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and the elders and the whole church to send chosen, men, send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Namely, Judas was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men from among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and brethren to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. What's he saying? There's some that have come out among you and they've told you you've got to be circumcised. And he says, we gave no such commandment. You can't bind it if God hasn't said it. And that's the way that was settled. Take a look at Hebrews, the seventh chapter, last illustration. Hebrews, the seventh chapter. I'll just read in verse 11 through 16. This is talking about the priesthood. Under the old law, the priest came from the tribe of Levi, the Levitical priesthood. But under the new covenant, the new constitution that Jesus brought, there is no Levitical priesthood. <laughs> Verse 11, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it was yet far more evident in the likeness of, of Melchizedek that there arises another priest who has come not according to the law or a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. What's he saying? 
Essentially what he's saying is, according to the law, Jesus could not be our high priest because the law said that all priests had to come from the tribe of Levi and Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. So how should we interpret and make application of God's law? It says, By faith Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Cain had decided... Well, I know what God said, but I'm just going to offer up a grain sacrifice anyway. Is there something wrong with grain? Is there something wrong with being a tiller of the ground? No, that's not the point. The point is what the Hebrew writer says. By faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice. The Hebrew writer also says, By faith, Noah built that ark for the saving of his household. When God said he wanted the ark made out of gopher wood, he didn't have to go down the line and say, I want it made out of gopher wood, but don't make it out of maple, and don't make it out of oak, and don't make it out of pine, and don't make it... He didn't have to do all that. <laughs> when he said make it out of gopher wood, he was bound to make it out of gopher wood. Don't go beyond what is written. According to the law, there were no priests from the tribe of Judah. That's the point the Hebrew writer is making. When the law was changed, when Jesus brought a new constitution, then he could be our high priest. He couldn't be our high priest under the old law because the old law made no provision for that. So what's the conclusion that we ought to reach? Even in regards to my friend and the discussion that we had, this would be the principle that I would hope that he would come to see. When he asked that question, and I think he's sincere, and I think he's just telling me from his perspective this is the way he now sees it. If a person has received sprinkling or pouring, what's wrong with that? That's what he's saying. And what I'm saying is, how does God view that? Does it matter to him? Well, as I look at these examples from the Old Testament and the New Testament, the conclusion that I'm forced to reach is, yes, it matters to him. So what should we do? Don't go beyond what is written. <laughs> Be bound by and held to that which is stated and operate and, and serve only in the realm where we have authority and not say, well, he didn't say we can't do it, so we'll just go ahead and do it. Jesus said once again, John 12 and verse 48, this same word which I have spoken shall judge you in that last day. So what's the safe way? What's the sure way of interpreting and applying God's word? just simply to do what he says become what he wants us to become and do what he requires within his word the Hebrew writer says he's the author of salvation to all those that obey him and Jesus makes this statement why call me Lord Lord 
and then do not the things which I say. That's what we would encourage folks to do. Take the safe course. Take the sure course. And let God's word guide you along that way. If there's anything here this morning never rendered obedience unto the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus himself said, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. We would encourage you to do that. If you're a child of God and not been living as you should, and you need to make that relationship right with him, John also says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, and the blood of his Son cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If we can help you in any way, making your relationship right with the Lord this morning, you let us know while together we stand and while we sing.